The following sermon was preached in the Sunday gathering of First Baptist Church of Wisconsin Rapids, Wisconsin. We pray it bears fruit in your life, and we hope that you share it with others who might also benefit. At the same time, if you're not already, we encourage you to join a faithful local church where you can sit under the preaching of God's word and observe the ordinances. Visit firstbaptistwr.com for more information. Our Father in heaven, I pray this morning that you would show the greatness of your power, that you would work by your spirit, Give us eyes to see your glory. Give us eyes to see the glory of this text of the book of Numbers. Help us to see the significance of it. I pray that you would turn unbelief to faith, that you would give the gift of eternal life even to one here. Help us to see the glory of your grace and how gracious you were to Israel in spite of all their sin. And help us here this morning those who believe to grow in grace and in knowledge of your word. pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So in Genesis, we saw that God promised Adam and Eve and all mankind with them a son, born of a woman who would crush the head of the serpent who had tempted Adam to sin and had plunged the world into darkness and ruin. As Genesis progresses, the Lord reiterates this promise several times to Abraham, promising an offspring and land, and even offspring as numerous as the stars of the sky, as numerous as the dust of the earth. Though he had no child and grew older and older, Isaac was the son promised to Abraham, and he was the father of Israel, whom God calls his son. But Israel did not immediately inherit that land the Lord had promised, but they went to sojourn in Egypt, just as God had foretold. And the Lord brought them out of Egypt, also just as he said, in order to gain glory for himself, that his name might be known in all the earth. The crushing of Egypt and the forces of Pharaoh in the Red Sea was an initial fulfillment of that crushing of the serpent that was promised in the first pages of Genesis. And in the rest of Exodus and Leviticus last week, we saw the Lord making provision for his dwelling among this people, to be with them, to restore and even fulfill that communion that Adam and Eve had with him in the Garden of Eden. The book of Numbers picks up right where Leviticus left off, and the narrative of Numbers continues this story of the Lord of glory who keeps his promises to his people despite their sin. If God made promises and did not keep them, he would be like us. He would not be God. But Numbers shows that God is who he says he is, and he keeps his word time and time again, even though men do not. The Lord will keep his promise. He will bring his people into the land he promised, and he will send the offspring that he promised. Now, Numbers begins as Leviticus did with the Lord speaking directly to Moses from the tabernacle at Sinai. The Lord commands Moses to take a census of all the congregation of Israel. And this is why this book is called Numbers. There's lots of numbers in this book. 
This is why a lot of people don't spend too much time reading it, because there's so many numbers, so many names. There's two different censuses taken of all Israel. And this census has to do with the land and the offspring that God had promised Abraham, just like I've been talking about. If you look at chapter 1, verse 30, the Lord commands Moses to take a census of all those in Israel, 20 years old and above, all who are able to go to war. So this is about numbering the men equipped for battle. Moses and Aaron are to number Israel by their armies. Armies are for war. And Israel is preparing to meet hostile enemies in their upcoming journey. And they're preparing to wage war against the Canaanites and take that land promised to them by the Lord. So they're getting their camp together, getting everything prepared, putting everything in order, and mustering their forces to take the promised land. There's more significance to this numbering. As I've just been saying, God promised Abraham offspring as numerous as the sand on the seashore, numerous as the dust of the earth and the stars in the sky in Genesis. And that was when Abraham didn't have a single male heir. So, of course, Abraham's wondering, how is he possibly going to do this? And it wasn't until Sarah was 90 when she actually gave birth to Isaac. And Sarah laughed when the Lord said she would give birth. And so her son was named Isaac, which means he laughs, and it sounds like it. Isaac. So Isaac's offspring Israel and his son went into Egypt, and Egypt enslaved them and tried to kill their offspring. But the more Egypt harassed and oppressed them, the more they were fruitful and multiplied. They became a great nation in spite of all that opposition, and they even plundered great Egypt on their way out, just as God had said they would. And now at Sinai, the number of the fighting men in Israel is 600,000. After going into Egypt, around 70 persons. Now, one estimate of the whole camp of Israel at that time, including Levites and women and children, would be 2 million. 2 million. After going into Egypt, around 70 persons in all that opposition that they faced. So God has been true to his word to Abraham, and he will continue to be true to his word. And in our time, the same is true even today. You may see a church harassed and helpless. You may see schisms. You may see heresies, violence, threats against the church. But God is keeping his promise. He will keep his promise. He said he would build his church and the gates of hell would not prevail against it. He said he would be with us always, even to the end of the age. Just as God was true to his word in the Old Testament, so he will be now. Christ is coming. So the Lord blessed Israel. And the greatest blessing of all is his gracious dwelling in their midst in the tabernacle. God draws near to them to dwell with them. He covers this tabernacle, this tent of meeting in the wilderness. In a cloud by day, fire by night. This is he appeared to Abraham as a smoking oven and a flaming torch in Genesis. And then in Exodus, he led them out of Egypt in a pillar of fire, in a pillar of smoke. And now in the wilderness, they are to follow this same Lord wherever he goes, wherever these, 
This cloud and this fire goes as God is dwelling over this tabernacle. Numbers 9.17 says, Whenever the cloud was taken up from above the tabernacle, after that the children of Israel would journey. And in the place where the cloud settled, there the children of Israel would pitch their tents. At the command of the Lord, the children of Israel would journey, and at the command of the Lord, they would camp. As long as the cloud stayed above the tabernacle, they remain encamped. So, sum up. When the presence of the Lord is over the tabernacle, they stay in camp. When the Lord's presence moves from there, they are to move. It doesn't matter what time of the day or night. It doesn't matter if God's presence was there for a few hours or whether his presence was there for a year. When the presence was over the tabernacle, they were to stay in camp. And when the Lord moved, they were also to move. Now, you can imagine how that might drive a person crazy. If you think about your day-to-day life, sitting there at the computer, working on a document, time to go. In the kitchen, baking some cookies, baking some bread, time to go. You never knew when. Could be in the middle of dinner. Time to go. God says so. It's time to set out. Just as Abraham left the land where he was dwelling, not knowing where he was going, so Israel at all times doesn't know where they might be going or when they might be going. So what is God's intent in doing that? Is he just trying to drive them crazy? He's working on them. He wants to make he himself central in their lives. He wants to teach his people to wait on him, to believe his promises, to trust his character, even if it doesn't make sense in the moment. God is to be all in all to them. He is to be their Lord. He wants them to trust him, to believe in him. So they must believe in God, and they must obey his word. God is working in them to make them holy. If you're a Christian, you might know the Lord does something similar in our lives today. We don't always know where he wants us to go, what he's doing in our lives. Why this happened, why that happened, why I need to move here now, why my job ended in this place or this time. But God is working in us for our good. He works all things for good for those who love him. You might not know now what he's doing, but someday you will. So believe in the Lord, in his gracious nature. He's working for your good. And the Lord also is preparing them for battle as he does this. Just as men in the military often say they have to hurry up and wait, as they go to the front lines, hurry up and wait, so Israel is hurrying up to wait at times. The Lord is preparing them to take orders, to put their camp in order, to march under his direction, to obey his word. So the camp of Israel in Numbers is an army on the march preparing to take enemy land. The Lord has promised the land and they are to conquer it under his command. And in Numbers 10.13, they set out to leave Mount Sinai where the Lord gave them the Ten Commandments. Verse 14 says, The standard of the camp of the children of Judah. Judah was to set out first. If you remember, Judah was not the firstborn of Israel. Reuben was the firstborn. But Judah got the greatest blessing from his father before his father died. 
in Genesis 49. Jacob blessed Judah, not Reuben the firstborn. It was Judah. And he said his brothers would praise him and his hand would be on the neck of his enemies and that the scepter would not depart from Judah. So as they go about in their travels in this wilderness, Judah will be leading, and the Lord will be leading them to victory through Judah. And that's very intentional. This is prophetic of that coming lion of the tribe of Judah in Christ. Now, as I've said, the Lord has shown time and time again how he's faithful to his word. He is going to bring them into the land he promised. He is going to send the offspring promised. He's going to bring them into a land flowing with milk and honey. He's already begun to make them as numerous as the sand on the seashore, even though Abraham, at the time he promised it, had no heir. So the Lord reveals his gracious presence among them, showing his goodwill. He dwells among them at the tabernacle. They can actually see God's presence there with them in the fire and in the cloud. And yet, and yet, at the same time, this holy God dwelling in this camp of Israel, we have this recurring point of tension. Israel is God's chosen people, his chosen vessel. And yet they sin over and over and over again, time and again. It punctuates almost every narrative. God gives them commands. They break them. God gives them commands. They break them. Over and over and over again. And so we see here. Soon after, Israel sets out from Sinai, where they saw the Lord descend in fire on that mountain. Numbers 11.1 1 says the people complained. People complain, or they murmur, or they grumble. And the text says the Lord heard, and his anger was aroused. So the fire of the Lord burned among them and consumed some in the outskirts of the camp. So the Lord is angry because in the midst of all this gracious provision to them, all of his great promises that he's made to them, dwelling in their midst, all that he's shown them, all the wonders that he's shown them from Egypt even to now, parting the Red Sea, letting them walk through on dry land while he smashes Egypt in the same waters, even so, they sin against him. And not just any kind of sin, they complain against him. They grumble against him. Verse 4 says, The mixed multitude yielded to intense craving. So you might think about that craving you might have for that dessert. Maybe at Christmas, that special dessert you get every year, or Thanksgiving, there's that pumpkin pie the whipped cream. They're craving something. And remember, they're out in the wilderness. They're out camping in this desolate wasteland. There's little food. There's little water to be had. We might say, well, I understand. It's not that easy to be out there with no water and no food. Well, remember, as these people cry out for meat to eat, and they long to return to Egypt, even where they were slaves, longing to return to Egypt. They're complaining about this food. 
In the meantime, the Lord was providing them bread from heaven to eat. Ever since Exodus 16, the Lord had provided manna. He had rained down bread from heaven with the dew in the evening. And every morning they could go out and gather all that they needed every day. The bread of angels, bread from heaven to eat. It just miraculously comes with the dew. Miracle food. They have miracle food to eat. And yet, they're weeping for their lack of meat. And the text says, in doing so, they despised the Lord who was among them. And so in response, the Lord says, in effect, you, you want meat? You say you want meat? Then I will give you meat. I'll give you so much it comes out your nose. You're going to eat meat not for a day or two, not for a week. You're going to eat meat for a month. And even Moses doesn't believe the Lord can do this. He says, even if you could slaughter every animal in the camp, there wouldn't be enough food for that. There wouldn't be enough meat. After everything that they've seen him do, and bringing them out of Israel, they still don't believe in him. He told Moses, I am who I am. He causes everything that there is. So this is the Lord's response. Has the Lord's arm been shortened? Now you shall see whether what I say will happen to you or not. Israel's whole history to this point has been God making happen exactly what he says will happen. That's how they got to this point. And so God is true to his word. He sends enough quail on the camp to make them sick. He gives them enough to make it come out their nose and make them sick of quail. But when he does that, their response is not to repent as you might think. The response is not to say, the Lord is truly among us. He will sustain us. If God is for us, what can be against us? What do we fear? How can we lack faith in this great God who can rain meat on us whenever he wants? Who brought us out of Egypt, even? That is not their response. They don't offer up a sacrifice of thanksgiving. The response is not to do that. Instead, they gorge themselves on the meat. They stay up all day and all night and all the next day as if they need to eat as much as they can, as fast as they can, because they don't know if they'll ever see enough food to eat again. They don't trust God that he's going to provide for them, that he will give them all that they need might not give them all that they want, but he will give them all that they need. And while the meat is still between their teeth, the wrath of the Lord is aroused, and he strikes them with a great plague. And they bury those people who had the craving for that meat. Now, as striking as that story is, as fearful as that story is, this is just the tip of the iceberg when it comes to Israel's disobedience in the wilderness, in numbers. Israel is a chosen race, a royal priesthood, God's son, God's holy people. But we also see Miriam, Miriam and Aaron complain against Moses. 
And you have to ask, who was Moses? As Moses said in Exodus 16, when the pre people complained previously, your murmurings aren't against us. Your murmurings aren't against me. They're against the Lord. I'm just to mediate between you and the Lord. I'm giving you his word. When you complain against me, you're complaining against him. So the reason that the Lord's wrath is so severe, his anger burns, is because the sin is so severe. It's so blatant, so brazen, so outright the wrath is ugly because the sin is ugly in the wilderness. And we have, what we have to recognize is our sin is ugly too. Our sin is very ugly. It's not just Israel who sins like this. If you read carefully, you look into this, you have to see Israel is a mirror for us to see our sin, for us to see our sinful nature. How often we doubt God in spite of all that he's done in our midst, in spite of all his gracious provision, in spite of all he's done through the cross, offering Christ as atonement for us all. Yet so often we doubt him. We think we're wandering in the wilderness. There won't be enough bread. There won't be enough water. How could God possibly get me through this crisis in life? This sickness? How's he going to get me through raising these children? Taking care of a sick mother or father? How is God going to turn that for good? Is God there? Is he working? It's not just Israel. But on the heels of these two incidents, Israel sends spies into Canaan. This is the land the Lord promised to their ancestors for hundreds of years, a land flowing with milk and honey, a land of their own, a land for their own possession. They go and spy it out, and they find that it's just as the Lord said. They go into that land, these spies, when they go there, they find a cluster of grapes so big that they have to carry it on a pole between two men. So two men carrying a cluster of grapes on a pole that's so big. You think you just put it in your pocket, put it in a saddlebag of your horse or something. They have to carry it between two men, not in a backpack. So this was a big cluster of grapes. So this land is truly flowing with milk and honey, just as the Lord had said. Again, God is keeping his word. When the spies come back with their report, they say to the congregation of Israel, we went to the land where you sent us. It truly flows with milk and honey, and this is its fruit, that cluster of grapes. A huge cluster of grapes is its fruit. God has been true to his word, but the people after this, they start to murmur again. They start to grumble. They start to complain. They say, yeah, it's a good land. It's pretty good. Some good fruit there. But, it's just like God said, but the people are strong. Their cities are fortified and large. We saw the sons of Anak there. And their hearts begin to melt at the thought of battle with these people. So they're looking at the size of their enemy, they're looking at the fierceness of their enemy, the strength of their enemy, 
and they're forgetting the glory of the Lord in their own camp, that Lord who smashed the forces of Egypt without breaking his sweat at the Red Sea. They forget about him. They look at the size of their enemy. Caleb tries to quiet this rabble, saying, Let us go up at once and take possession, for we are well able to overcome it. He says, what does it matter how big they are? The Lord is with us. He promised us the land. Let's go take it. But the crowd prevails. They speak of giants. They say it's a land that devours people. And they felt like grasshoppers to the people there. And they said that the people there also saw them as grasshoppers. So they complain against Moses and Aaron. They long to go back to Egypt. They want to go back into slavery. Joshua and Caleb rip their clothes. They tear their clothes and they plead with them. They say, paraphrasing, the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. Their protection has departed. They're bread for us to eat. And their response is that they want to stone Joshua and Caleb. So Israel rebels against God again. And the Lord, in response to this, he says he will wipe them off the face of the earth and raise up a nation from Moses in their place. But Moses pleads on their behalf in spite of their sin. He pleads. He intercedes with God. He pleads God's own promises. He says the nations will say, it's because you weren't able to bring them up out of Egypt. It's because you weren't able to bring them into the land that you cut them off. Moses does not want God to be defamed here. He pleads with God, please, Lord, spare them for your own sake, for the sake of your own name. You said you would make your name great among all the nations. This is not going to advance that cause. So Moses is acting as a priest, coming between the Lord and the people, interceding for their sin, and keeping back God's anger and his wrath. And the Lord says in chapter 14, verse 20, I have pardoned according to your word. The Lord pardons this sin because of Moses' prayer. And even so, Even so, every man over 20, everyone who is numbered in that census, every man who is ready for battle, every man who is to be mustered to go in and take this land as Joshua and Caleb tried to exhort them to do, every one of those men, they will not see the promised land. God says their carcasses will fall in the wilderness. Only Joshua and Caleb, who the text says had a different spirit, will enter the land. So God is gracious here, but their sin has consequences. None of these men who go in to spy out the land and bring back a bad report, who doubt God's promises, who are unbelieving, none of them will enter the promised land. There is more rebellion in the book of Numbers. There's more complaining. There's Korah's rebellion. Moses and Aaron are even rebellious at Kadesh, and they will not see the promised land either. They will also fall in the wilderness. They complain, and the Lord sends fiery serpents. They travel in the wilderness 
40 years because of the cowardice of these spies, because their hearts melting from the battle. The Lord miraculously provides for them food and water throughout their journeys. And yet the people continue to sin. In Numbers 25, the people of Moab seduce them. Chapter 25, verse 1 says they committed harlotry with the people of Moab. The text says that Moab invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods. And the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel was joined to Baal of Peor, and the anger of the Lord was aroused against Israel. So the people are to have no other gods beside the Lord, but this people here, the people of Moab, they seduce them to come to their sacrifices, to eat with them, to bow down to their gods. And so in having that kind of close communion with them, they join themselves to the God of the nations, to Baal. And the anger of the Lord is aroused against them. And they hang the offenders in the sun before the Lord. But at that very time, when they're executing these judgments at the command of the Lord against those who have offended in this matter, at that very time, we see a man of Israel come sauntering into camp with a Midianite woman on his arm. A woman from this very people who has just seduced Israel. God said, don't intermarry with them. Don't go to their sacrifices. Be distinct. Be holy, like he commanded them to be in Leviticus. But this man comes into camp, and he presents this woman before the whole congregation of Israel and before Moses, in the sight of all the people, it says. He did not have any shame. And he goes to take her right into his tent with them, in the sight of all the people. Now Phineas, the grandson of Aaron the priest, immediately takes a javelin in his hand, a light spear. He takes a javelin and immediately goes after the man of Israel and the woman, the Midianite woman, and he thrusts it through both of them in the tent. Immediately. A plague had started among Israel. 24,000 died in this plague that the Lord unleashes in response to this sin, committing harlotry with the nations. Phineas stops it by running both of them through, the man and the woman. Now I can just hear some of the people murmuring in the camp. That wasn't very Christ-like, Phineas. That's toxic masculinity. That wasn't very charitable. Jesus wouldn't do that. Couldn't they talk it out a little bit first? I think Phineas needs some anger management. <laughs> Phineas was zealous for the Lord. I want to point out that Phineas was a priest. He was a grandson of Aaron, the priest. He was a clergyman. 
And the Lord does not disapprove of what he does. The Lord commends him for his zeal. He says that the zeal that Phineas shows there was his own zeal in going to end that plague. Phineas makes atonement for the people of Israel. He stands up, stands in the gap, and stops the plague. The Lord commends him for this. The Lord gives him a covenant of peace for what he's done. So many think that Christians, the job of Christians is to keep the peace, to smooth things over, keep everything peaceful. Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount does not bless the peacekeepers. He doesn't say they're the ones who are blessed. The peacemakers are the ones who are blessed. Phineas is a peacemaker here, burning in zeal for God. J.C. Ryle lamented how so many seem to see the church as a place for young children and women and not for men. The church has become very effeminate. Many people see clergy as the third sex. They're not quite sure if pastors and preachers are male or if they're female. They're not quite sure. Where do they quite fit in? But nobody would be mistaken with Phineas here. This is zeal, a fire for God in his glory. To stop this plague, to be true to his word. He stands in the gap. He makes atonement for the children of Israel. He's commended for it. So be zealous for your God. Phineas is an example for us here. Be zealous. We're not under the same covenant today. We don't take up the sword like Phineas. But we should have the same zeal for God and against sin as he did. He's an example for us of godly zeal for purity in the church of Christ today. The rest of the book is a steady march back to the promised land. The Lord marks out the boundary of the land and the boundaries of each tribe. The message is that in spite of Israel's sin, in spite of all this great sin, the land is still theirs to take. God still keeps his promise. Even Israel's sin will not thwart his promise. And the the clearest expression of that idea, God keeping his promise, comes from the most unlikely place, a false prophet named Balaam, who Moab tries to hire to curse Israel. Israel began to win a few battles in the land as they're preparing to go to Canaan. And Moab sought to hire Balaam to curse them in response. Moab is fearful of the people, just like Pharaoh is fearful of them in Exodus. The people are growing. There's so many of them. The text says Moab was exceedingly afraid of the people of Israel because they were many, and Moab was sick with dread. They're sick with dread. He's fearful of the people. He's shaking in his boots. So he wants this false prophet to curse them. But long story short, it's a good story, but we don't have time to get into all of it. Balaam blesses Israel instead of cursing them. In Numbers chapter 23, verse 8, he says, How shall I curse whom God has not cursed? And he goes on later, Who can count the dust of Jacob? Or number one-fourth of Israel. This people who has two people, Abraham and his wife. Who can number one-fourth 
of this congregation. God is keeping his promises. These things that Balaam says are almost word for word echoing God's promise to Abraham in Genesis 12, 1 through 3, and Genesis 13, 16. God said he would curse those who curse Abraham in Genesis, and in return for Moab wanting, to, wanting Balaam to curse Israel, instead, Balaam curses Moab. Exactly what God said would happen. He speaks of Israel in prophetic language, echoing the previous scriptures, echoing God's great promises that he would be with them, that he would give them the land, that he would give them offspring. He speaks in language recalling Eden. He speaks of gardens and aloes and cedars by the river. And he prophesies about God's faithfulness. He says God does not lie. He's not like a son of man that he would lie. He does what he says he's going to do. But Balaam develops the promise of the land and the offspring more clearly. He starts to go further. He prophesies of a king, a king from Jacob. He says the shout of a king is among Israel, even though they have no earthly king at the time. He says in chapter 24, Israel's king will be higher than Agag, and his kingdom shall be exalted. Balaam is expanding on this promise from Genesis 49 from Jacob, when he speaks of Judah's dominion. He foretells of a coming king who will take dominion, not just over Canaan, but he will consume the nations, his enemies. He will take Edom. He will have dominion and destroy the remains of the city. Well, let's focus in on Numbers 24, 17. Numbers 24, 17. Balaam has been prophesying of a king from Israel, But in verse 17, he says, speaking of this king, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob. A scepter shall rise out of Israel and batter the brow of Moab and destroy all the sons of tumult. So Balaam sees a male offspring, not coming now, but coming in the future. He calls him a star from Jacob, a star from Jacob, and a scepter from Israel. Kings hold scepters. He's speaking of a king. And this king will shatter the forehead of Moab. Now, Moab is the people who seduces Israel to sin just after this narrative here. Moab is playing the part of the serpent and the seed of the serpent. And if you remember, I said when you see language about crushing heads... Shattering the forehead, you should think of that promise from Genesis 3.15, that a seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. These are messianic-type texts and prophecies. So a king with a scepter is coming, a star from Jacob. Now as we start to go into fall here, our thoughts start turning to the holidays Can you think of a star anywhere else in Scripture? You should be able to think of one. If you remember, it was in Bethlehem that a star came and stood over the place where the baby was laid, the baby Jesus. The place where a son was born king of the Jews, just as Balaam foretells. Imagine I said, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. Now, how did these wise men from the east 
Know that the star meant the birth of the king of the Jews. I don't know what they were all into, um, but it seems they may have been familiar with this prophecy, this very prophecy here. Jesus is the star the Christ Israel was waiting for, based in part on this text. He's the bright morning star. Jesus is the son, and that son born and laid in that manger in his life, in his ministry, like Israel in Numbers, he would march out and wage war against evil. Like Joshua and Caleb before him, he didn't fear the enemies raging. He went up against Rome and all her might and pomp. Caesar, Pontius Pilate, he didn't fear them. He would go in at once and take the land, bearing witness to the truth, laying his life down as a sacrifice, trusting God's promise. He knew by God's grace, just like Joshua and Caleb, he was well able to overcome the enemy and take the land. He didn't complain when he went hungry in the wilderness 40 days and 40 nights. When he was tempted by Satan, he persevered. He was the true bread from heaven. His food was to do the work of him who sent him. He wasn't complaining about a lack of food any time in his time on earth. He was that rock that gushed water when struck. He was that Phineas who took a javelin in his hand and ended the plague against God's people. He was a zealous man who made atonement. He's a better Phineas. He's a better Moses who lives to intercede for us and has quenched God's wrath against our sin. All of God's promises are yes and amen in Christ. All of these things are fulfilled in Christ. Every blessing promised to Israel throughout this Old Testament, as we'll see over and over and over again. But it's not just for Jews, it's for Gentiles also. It's for everyone, the whole world. Just as God said to Abraham, all the nations of the earth will be blessed in your seed, in Christ. So if you're here this morning hearing this, God's promise is for you. He offers Christ freely as a grant and a gift to all who will receive it. Whosoever will may come. So how long can you continue in unbelief, in rebellion, like Israel, knowing all that God has done for you through the cross, that he offers that freely to all who will receive it? The Lord asks in Numbers 14.11 to Israel, about Israel, how long will they not believe me? How long will they not believe me with all the signs which I have performed among them? Now, church, the great signs that God showed in Egypt in drawing them out through the Red Sea, all the signs that he showed on Sinai throughout the wilderness, dropping manna from heaven, making water gush out of the rock, all of these great signs pale in comparison to the great sign that he worked in Christ. Christ fulfilled all of these things. These things were but shadows of the Christ who was to come. That great miracle of the incarnation. Christ fulfilling the scriptures. Christ's miracles. Casting out demons. Resurrection from the dead. 
Not only that, but he appeared to many. He left us the testimony of his inspired word. as an undeniable witness of his divinity. Christ is alive today. He is reigning at the Father's right hand, and he will reign until he puts all of his enemies under his feet. He commands all men to repent. He offers the gift of eternal life. So don't go on disbelieving like Israel. Confess your sin. Believe in Christ. If you are a believer in Christ, repent. Believe in him. Plead with God for grace. All the blessings of divinity are found in Christ, and we receive it by faith alone, not by any of our own works. None of our works improve our justification. We receive Christ's righteousness by faith. We receive Christ's death and atonement for our sins by faith. It is all in Christ. Receive those blessings by faith. Let's pray. Father, I pray that we would look on that blessed Christ, that promised Son who was to come, that true Son of promise, your beloved Son, in whom you are well pleased. Father, we know that you're not well pleased in any one of us, and in any of our works, but you're pleased in Christ. But through the cross, you are pleased in anyone who believes in him for eternal life. So please give us that faith. Grant that to any who have never believed before. And please renew the faith of all of us who are already in Christ. Pour out your grace on us. And let faith have its full effect and produce love and good works. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.